Would you turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 7, verse 53? It's the last verse in John chapter 7. And we're going to read through 8 11. As you're turning, let me just say one very quick thing. Most of your Bibles will have a footnote and say, In some manuscripts, this verse is found in chapter 19. Oh, sometimes it's found in chapter 11. What do we do with the moving around of this story? The answer is, we enjoy it. It's a story that fits John's theme. It's a story that uses John's writing style, his vocabulary. Uh, It fits perfectly within John. And as we get into our text, we'll see it fits perfectly right here. So what we're going to do is we're going to read God's Word and we're going to ask a simple question. How do you handle moral failure? How do we handle moral failure? Let's pray. We'll get in. Heavenly Father, You have preserved your word for the faith and holiness and the comfort of your people. And those are three things that we need today, now, more than ever. So, Father, would you apply this word by your Spirit, that we may, by believing in Christ, grow in holiness, and by growing in holiness, we may grow in comfort. Father, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's pick up in verse 53. Hear the word of the Lord. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commands us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one beginning with the older ones, and Jesus Jesus was left alone with the woman, standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Women, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Thus ends the reading of God's Word this morning. This is our question. How do we handle moral failure? I don't mean 
the moral failures of some politician far away. I don't mean when you turn on WLBT and you see the moral failings that happen in our own states. I mean things like when you have multiple children and one walks in and says, Mommy, he hit me. Or when you get angry and it leads to a violent outburst. I mean, when your husband comes home from work unemployed because of a grievous character flaw. Or when your young teenage daughter looks at you and says, Dad, I'm pregnant. How do we handle moral failure? Here you are. They have just fallen to pieces. You're wounded by the shards of their tattered life. What do you do? Do you get angry? Do you fill in all the missing details in their story and rub their nose in it? How do we, do we raise our voice? How do we respond? Or do you simply let bygones be bygones? Look the other way. Enable their sin. Excuse their actions. How do we handle moral failure? Herein lies Jesus' problem. He's just minding his own business. And they bring him this woman who's been caught in the act of adultery. And Jesus is caught, as we like to say, between a rock and a hard place. St. Augustine kind of summarizes Jesus' problem well. If Jesus says, stone this woman, he will not have the reputation of being gentle. But if Jesus says, let her go, he won't have the reputation of being righteous. So what does he do? Well, let's look. Jesus has a couple options. The first option is to throw stones. Let's call this the law approach. It's the Pharisees' preferred solution. For they say, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. The Pharisees used the law to deal with the problem of the heart. That's something the law can't do. Now I want you to imagine this woman. She's caught in the act. She's dragged before some man she doesn't even know. And all her dirty laundry is aired out. How do you think that woman feels? Somset Magum has a story called Inhuman Bondage. It's about a boy named Philip. Philip was born with clubfoot. So he walked with a limp. And they sent him to boarding school. And on the first day of boarding school, they play pig in the middle. And they put Philip in the middle. How do you think that worked out? It was a disaster. They all hobbled around and, and mocked and eluded Philip. Well, that night as the boys go in their dorm, the boys want to see Philip's beastly foot. Philip tells them no. Well, one boy jumps on Philip. Two boys jump on Philip. Three boys jump on Philip screaming, show us the foot. And finally... 
he seeks it out. And they trace the foot with their finger and they, they mock him. And as the headmaster opens the door, all the kids scatter. And Philip buries his face in his pillow. Not for the pain of having those three boys on it. Not for the humiliation of them mocking him. But in rage. Rage at himself because he caved in and stuck out his foot. Now let's jump back to our woman. How do you think this woman feels? Her being dragged there against her will did not produce repentance. It produced rage. The law has no power to change the human heart. Instead, the law irritates and enrages our sin. John Calhoun says, The desire of a sinner becomes more vehement the more he perceives it to be a forbidden object. They had to stone this woman. Because if not, she'd just run to another man. This is something we all know, don't we? How many people... Read the warning labels, the dire warning labels on the back of a cigarette pack and smoke them anyway. Just come to the sunflower. I'll tell you, it's a lot. How many of us have told our kids, don't you hang out with folks like that? And then what do they do? They hang out with those exact people only because you told them not to. How many of us here know that sinning will send you to hell? How many of us do it anyway? The law has no power to change our hearts. At best, the law approach is behavior modification. At worst, it's a step backwards. The law approach is the wrong response to moral failure. Now what about the second option? We can call it the anti-law approach. Our society loves this passage, the anti-law approach. How many times does this happen? You have someone, they fall into some great sin, and when you begin to call them out on it, they say, hey, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. As in them saying, you can't talk to me about that. How's that work out? It typically doesn't. But we harbor this feeling even when they don't say it. We don't speak to their sin. We live with this presumption. Oh, they'll change for the better. They'll change for the better. It'll work out. But the fact is, human nature does not change on its own. At least not for the better. All of us here have had to mow our yard. I would have a better chance of walking outside and saying, grass, mow yourself. Then I have any expectation for anyone here to improve for the better. But on the other hand, there's another kind of flip side to this coin. We have a tim we're timid to call people out on their sin. Why? We don't want to look mean. We don't want to be judgmental. 
We don't want to push them away. What if this ends our relationship? And that's a good feeling. Nobody wants to go around looking like a bully. But that feeling has been weaponized to excuse a multitude of sin. And it has been for the hurt of both parties. In Gilead, there's a young pastor's kid named Jack. Jack gets a poor, poor girl pregnant and leaves. He leaves his convertible and he leaves her a few hundred dollars. And he goes to St. Louis. And the poor girl raises his child in a shack. His dad, the pastor, out of duty and shame, tried to help the young woman. But the young boy cuts his foot on a piece of glass and dies. Do you know where Jack was? They didn't either. And when Jack would come around, his dad wouldn't have that honest conversation with him. It's his son. And here's the kicker. His dad was Presbyterian. And his dad would cut a hole in his convictions so his son could live there. Do you know how painful that is for that child? I mean, for that father? Incredibly painful. Do you think he did any favors for the son? The son moved to St. Louis. His brother mailed him money every month to support his life of debauchery. And his son Jack went from one moral failure to another. He lived a life dominated by shame because he knew he had shamed his father. He knew he had shamed himself. Kicking away the law, not addressing the issue, the father kicked the chair out from under Jack, leaving him to suffocate on the short rope of shame. Is this how we are to handle moral failure? When we read in the Bible that God wants to punish people, do you know how He does it? He lets them do what they want to do. That never ends well. The anti-law approach only promotes a life of wickedness, of unrighteousness. And many are the sorrows of the wicked. So if we can't do the law approach, and we can't do the anti-law approach, what does Jesus do? Jesus' response to moral failure is the gospel. Look at our text. The scribes and Pharisees rashly storm into Jesus. They want to stone this woman. And what is Jesus doing? He's riding on the ground. What's Jesus riding? It doesn't matter what Jesus is riding. I have a good friend of mine that when you're talking and she's thinking, do you know what she does while she's thinking? She draws. That's how you know... She's processing the information you're giving her. Jesus isn't responding to their rashness with more rashness. Jesus is deliberating. 
Philip Melanchthon notes elsewhere that Jesus is tolerating their wickedness. He's abstaining from exposing them as long as possible. But when Jesus does expose them, He does it plainly and gently. You hear those two words? Plainly and gently. And when Jesus rises to speak, He says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. He isn't saying you have to be sinless in order to render judgment on someone. If that was the case, we can never spank our children. We can never tell our children that they're doing something wrong. Jesus isn't referring to sin whatsoever. Jesus is referring to the sin of adultery. For why else would their consciences be pricked so powerfully? How else would they have caught the woman in the act? In this moment, Jesus is not excusing the sin of the woman. Jesus is calling her accusers to repentance. There is no room for repentance under the law. But there is plenty of room under the gospel. And one by one, their hearts are pricked and they turn away. This, and then Jesus turns to this woman, this angry, this humiliated, this ashamed woman, and he says, where are those who condemn you? Do you see them? And now she says, I don't. And then Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Do you know what we call that? We call that an assurance of pardon. We call that the gospel. This is the proper response to moral failure. Many of us in this room have felt, have thought, have done horrible things. Many of us have had our noses rubbed in it, which is not a pleasant experience. Many of us have been given a long leash, and it has only led to a world of problems. Instead, Jesus gives us neither. He is very honest with us in our sin, but he says, neither do I condemn you. Instead, Jesus was condemned for you. The Pharisees couldn't accuse him of guilt. He kept the law. Even Pilate said, this man is blameless. And yet, he was condemned by bloody men, by lawless men, not by stones, but by a cross. He bore our condemnation so that he could look at us and say, neither do I condemn you. The law may condemn you. Your heart may condemn you. But I am greater than both. I do not condemn you. This is the gospel. Now I know what many of us here are saying. That's the same old story. I've heard that story before, but I'm just going to tell you. You're all, we are all the same old sinners. When others sin... How often do we offer them the gospel? 
Most of us like to come down with the hammer. At least that's my gut approach. When we sin, how often do we run to the gospel? We want to find an excuse. We want to cut a loophole out. We want to beat ourselves up and say, Oh God, I'm not worthy. No. Jesus tells us, I do not condemn you. Jesus calls us to the gospel. The law cannot change your heart, and your heart ain't going to change by itself, but Jesus can do both. Now for us, we might say, Zach, what about righteousness? Are you giving this woman a get-out-of-jail-free card? Is this one of these fire insurance type gospels? Well, no, look what Jesus says. He says, go and sin no more. Not go commit adultery no more. He says go and sin no more. Repentance isn't about stopping only one sin. That's like saying going on a diet means adding a Diet Coke to your meal. It doesn't make any sense. Repentance is the breaking off of all sin. Jesus wholly saves us. So He expects us to live a holy life. Our salvation is all or nothing. He expects our sanctification to be all or nothing. Do you know why? Because those who are forgiven much, love much. And those who love much, become like those whom they love. And as the Jesus we love is sinless, so we strive to sin less. Now, in closing, there's one fatal mistake in our passage. It's the Pharisees. They're called to repentance, and instead of turning to Jesus, they turn away. Now, you might look at the Pharisees and say, mission accomplished. They stopped stoning this woman, but they stopped sinning only for a season. Just keep reading a couple chapters, and you'll see that they will do much worse to Jesus. The question to us today is how are we going to respond to moral failure in others and in ourselves? Do we turn away or do we turn to Jesus? On the other hand, there's a wonderful truth in our passage. A moral savior, may a moral failure hurt a savior. An adulterous woman found a husband. She stared down death and looked up to eternal life. She knew only scorn, but felt only love. What about us? Jesus is the only response to moral failure. Now let us pray. Heavenly Father, I think each of us here have said at some point or another that I have forgotten far more than I've learned. As we return to very basic truths about a very simple gospel, would you impress them upon our mind that they may never be forgotten? That as we deal with our own hearts and we deal with the hearts of others, that we may first run to Jesus. Father, help us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand with me? We're going to